How you doing? My name is Rod Leary, and I'm the director of the movie that you're about to see. It's called The Last Castle. Uh, I love these uh, director's commentaries. Uh, I've said that before. Basically, I think that they're better than film school. Not that I can be better than a film professor, but I think that if you watch enough of these and listen to enough of these commentaries, uh, you're going to do yourself a real service if you want to be a filmmaker, a director, a screenwriter, DP, whatever. And uh, To be honest with you, I think that the best way I can serve you is to tell you what we did right and, and what we did wrong in this film, and I'll give you some anecdotes along the way. First of all, listen to that score. That's Jerry Goldsmith, and I've got to tell you that one of the most exciting things for me in making this film was getting to work with Jerry Goldsmith. I was a cadet at West Point, and I remember looking at the statue of Patton, and all I could hear in my head was uh, his amazing music for, uh, for that movie. He lost the Academy Award that year, I believe it was to Love Story, and I think that's one of uh, the great disservices in, uh, in, the, in Oscar history. And this very haunting uh, melody that he has here, which is 25 notes, uh, we call it uh, September the 11th, 2001, because he wrote it on that date. It's pretty haunting. It's pretty beautiful. Good stuff. Now, this, uh, this movie is credited to two writers, David Scarpa, who came up with the story, and, um, and Graham Yost, who had written Speed and, and a whole uh, other series of films. Very successful screenwriter. I think they did a wonderful job. This was a film that was offered to me uh, right after I did The Contender, which was also released by DreamWorks. I had written that film and uh, obviously had not written this film. Uh, and it was not really my intention, I think, to direct a film that I had not uh, written. And in fact, after The Contender came out, I received a whole plethora of screenplays. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of them were written by, uh, by women and were about women. Uh, here was a, a movie written by men and uh, has only men in it, basically. Uh, but it dealt with military issues, and it dealt with the issues of leadership, which uh, I really loved uh, the whole concept of. Here is, uh, here is James Gandolfini, uh, an amazing and, and wonderful actor. And it was interesting trying to get him into, into the film because Jim Gandolfini is an interesting guy. He neither understands his popularity, accepts his popularity, nor understands his stature in, in, in Hollywood and in the whole acting community. And when I went to see him, he told me that he didn't really want to do the film because he didn't understand the character. He wasn't in the military, had never been in the military. And uh, I convinced him that the movie was not so much about the, about the military, but about what I just talked about, which were the concepts of leadership. The very issue being that uh, some leaders are made leaders and some leaders are born leaders. It is only the born leaders who will eventually survive. Now, uh, you know, Jim bought into that. That was something that he could sink his teeth into. And I think eventually that is why he was convinced to do the role, that and working with Robert Redford. Now, here is Steve Burton. Steve auditioned for a, a much smaller role, and uh, when we saw how much he blew us away, we asked him to come back and audition for the role of uh, Lieutenant, or Captain Peretz, in fact. And, uh, you know, I wanted to fill all the supporting characters with uh, basically unknown actors so that, they, that there would not be a distraction. To me, it creates more reality in a film to have unknowns. And it also gives them a break. I, I love to give actors breaks. So here I am bringing in Steve Burton, and he shows up in Nashville, Tennessee, where this film was uh, filmed. And on the first day, all the uh, women in Nashville are at the gate, not waiting for Bob Redford or Jim Gandolfini, but for Steve Burton. I had absolutely no clue that uh, Steve was a soap opera superstar. He was on the show General Hospital. 
And in fact, uh, <laughs> in, in fact, he left General Hospital to do this movie. So uh, it's my fault, Steve. I'm sorry. Now here is kind of a fun scene. This was cre this shot was created by Shelley Johnson, who is uh, a very masterful uh, director of photography. It looks, you see, like we're on a dolly track following a bus, but in fact, it was a very low-flying helicopter that was able to, you know, rise as a helicopter would would rise to reveal the uh, the castle. This is all beautiful Tennessee in the background. And uh, with uh, the pretty triumphant score that Jerry Goldsmith has here, we create some aura of uh, anticipation. And here come all the men, all the extras assembling to uh, go ahead and to, uh, to greet General Irwin as he arrives. Obviously, he is a man of great prominence. I cannot say enough about these extras. Always out there in the sweltering heat or the bitter cold, Terrific group of guys. There's George Scott Stumper on the right, and then we've got Paul Calderon, um, who is uh, playing Delbo on the, the left-hand side. Now here comes a great find, Mark Ruffalo. Um, I saw Mark Ruffalo in You Can Count On Me in the DreamWorks screening room. We've been considering a bunch of actors to play Yates. It's the third lead in the film. And uh, Paul Lister, who was the exec on this film, a terrific guy, uh, sat down next to me during the screening of You Can Count on Me and said, so what do you think? And I said to him, I think we should go for him. I mean, he's an amazing actor. And, and that was one of the most heralded performances, I think, of uh, the year 2000. A surprise that Mark did not get an Academy Award consideration for that movie. Bob Redford. Well, there's not enough that you can say about Robert Redford. Uh, I think it's a little odd to see him here wearing uh, a military uniform and three stars. He's a classic lefty. I, um, Bob Redford means a lot to my life and to my career. Redford uh, uh, was the producer and the star of All the President's Men, and he owned that property. And that movie made me want to be a journalist, and then it made me want to become a filmmaker. And I remember when I first met with Redford in London to try to convince him to be in this movie, um, all we talked about was All the President's Men. We never really got around to talking about uh, the, what was then called the castle, what is now called the last castle. And I remember at the end of the meeting, he, he laughed with me, you know, sort of understanding the irony of this, and he elected uh, to talk to me the next day. I want to go back to that ring in a second, which I think is kind of, uh, kind of key to the film. And he, um, he told me to come back, and we discussed the candidate the next day, the movie from 1971. And it wasn't until uh, he sort of walked out of the room that he told me that, yeah, he's probably going to do uh, this movie. He'd seen uh, The Contender, it hit his own sensibilities, and, uh, and there you go. So uh, it, took, uh, it, it took a long trip to London to talk about not The Last Castle, but his other movies to get him into the castle. Five uh, that ring that we saw before is very important. It's the West Point ring, and it's the only remnant that he has of his past. He's been stripped of, of everything else in that uh, scene that we just saw with Kristen Shaw, another actress from, uh, from The uh, Contender. Here is Jim Gandolfini's Colonel Winter. You know, I thought this was a nice touch that uh, the writers put in. Um, it looks like he's looking at his trinkets, but in, in fact, he's preparing for the meeting with the great General Irwin, who he respects very, very much. The concept of no saluting, you know, will obviously be... Uh, seen throughout the entire movie, and uh, the, you know, the, it may be one of the most important lines in, in the film. It uh, was set up very expertly by Graham and by uh, and by David. 
May I offer you some lemonade? Thank you. Just be a minute, sir. Now, we're going to see Clifton Collins in, in a second, Clifton Collins Jr., who we just uh, saw in the earlier scene. Clifton was uh, in the movie Traffic, and um, he, was, uh, he auditioned for the part of Aguilar, and he was the first person that auditioned for the part of Aguilar. And it was one of those rare, beautiful moments in a casting process where you basically uh, know that you have the right guy right away. He came in and uh, fully projected himself in, in, into the character. And he basically had the part uh, sewn up for him on the car ride home. You know, he was, um, you know, he, and he's just a delight as an actor. And I think that he's going to be a major player over the next uh, 10 or 15 years. There he is. You know, you know it's really a, a delightful role. And, I, and when we were testing the film, uh, he scored extremely high. The, audience seem, the audiences seemed to like him um, almost as much as they liked the leads of the film, which is pretty, pretty extraordinary stuff them a question what do you expect from your time here at the castle nothing just Redford was uh, so interesting on the set because you know most actors be between takes they get on the phone or they um, you know they relax Robert Redford reads the dictionary and uh, that's pretty intimidating and then he'll quiz you on uh, on words that he has just read what he fails to understand however is that uh, Obviously, he had just read the words, so he didn't know what they meant, so I shouldn't know what they mean either. Jim Gandolfini, between takes, would play chess. And in fact, he became a really masterful chess player and, and basically unbeatable by the, by, the end of the, by the end of the shoot. I wish in this scene that we're about to see that I had uh, covered it a little bit more, um, especially this area down here. I, I wish that I would have paid uh, slightly more attention uh, to the detail of, of the trinkets that are inside this particular booth. I, I would like to see the audience to see what he's seeing. You know, sometimes you just don't think about things uh, on a set or it just uh, fails to cross your mind. That shot, for example, we did as an afterthought. We shot it as an insert um, uh, far later in, into the film. Suppose he's got one of them? Never know. Do you? I, I mean, do you collect anything? That little do you, do you collect anything that Steve Burton just did is sort of an, uh, sort of an homage to uh, something that Redford does, which uh, Redford interrupts himself, whereas characters interrupt themselves in mid-conversation all the time. It creates a sense of naturalism that's, uh, I think, pretty wonderful and, and pretty unique. This is the great misunderstanding, quote-unquote misunderstanding in the film, that uh, sets up the conflict for the rest of the film. And uh, if this little moment hadn't happened, uh, there would be no conflict. Uh, Irwin would probably go ahead and be a good prisoner, would do his time and go home just uh, as he promised uh, that he would. But now we have a series of dominoes uh, that have been set into motion that's going to set up uh, really the antagonism uh, between the two men that will uh, take over the rest uh, of the movie. It's really a pretty wonderful conflict that the two, uh, the two writers put, uh, put together for us. Let me take uh, a moment now just to talk about the producer of the film. His name is Robert Lawrence, who really uh, found this project. David uh, Scarper brought him the idea, and he went ahead and, uh, and really put it together. I mean, Robert Lawrence, who had, uh, has also done the movie Rockstar and uh, the third Die Hard film and Clueless, is a guy that really knows how to put a movie together. And, uh, you know, without him, nothing would, would have occurred. And uh, when I first met with him, it was really his passion 
and his zeal to make this movie that really inspired me, really got me to again do something that I normally would not have done, which is to direct somebody else's work. Now this is a nice introduction. This is Beaupre, played by Brian Goodman, a real fine. We'll talk more about him, uh, more about him later. But it was a great way to introduce a character being uh, taken down on a, on a forced exit, a forced move, as they call it. And um, that idea came from Frank Military, who is uh, another actor in the film. He plays Doc, who is, in fact, a screenwriter. He was a great resource to us. Uh, he came up with a lot of really wonderful ideas. And that particular bit of staging, that particular way of introducing uh, the vicious Beaupre was uh, his idea, and I thought, uh, I thought that it was really terrific. Now, you're going to see a moment here where um, uh, Robert Redford enters his cell, and he's going to take his left hand and his right hand. He's going to stretch them out and touch either side of the cell. And, uh, you know, as we were rehearsing this, I, was, uh, I went to a corner and sort of shook my head, and Bob came up to me, and he said, what's wrong, Rod? I can tell something is wrong. And I said to him, you, you want to know something? I just don't want this to come across like some sort of Christian analogy. And, uh, you know, Bob looked at me, he laughed, and he said, you don't have to worry about that, I can promise you. And look at it right now, there's nothing Christ-like about this at all. You know, he's one of the few actors who would uh, make a point not to have that occur. In fact, it's quite a cliche to have it occur. This was a fun shot that uh, Shelley came up with. Uh, look how dark that Black Knight is, wow. We do a complete push-in from, uh, from far away, almost until we're, you know, at a medium, uh, semi-close-up shop, whatever you want to call it. Yes, sir. And uh, he looks like a, a completely defeated man, doesn't he here? A man who realizes that um, he's in a bad way. His hero has let him down. It's a real nice piece of work by Jim Gandolfini. A real wonderful performance. Boy, I cannot get enough of it. So here comes a, a fight scene between Enriquez, played by Mike Irby, and George uh, Scott as, uh, as Thumper. And uh, this was uh, choreographed by Mick Rogers, who is, uh, uh, you know, my second unit director on this film. And, you know, for the fight scene and for the action scene that will conclude the film, Mick was not my second unit director. He was my co-director. He was uh, really in absolutely more than just in, in the thick of it. Uh, he was completely and absolutely indispensable. The fight, by the way, was um, was much more brutal. Uh, if you if we put the whole thing in there, there are things in there that uh, you know m could have gotten us, in fact, an NC-17 rating. They were so so intense. But uh, you know, in the in the end, what you do is you shoot as much as as you want, and then just uh, you edit appropriately. And you edit down appropriately. I'm glad that we had too much to work from. I think if we use everything that we had shot, this would be a 25-minute fight that no human being could actually uh, survive. So General Irwin's character here is beginning to notice that uh, this place is not run by the inmates and it's not run by the guards. It's run by one man, and that is Colonel Winter, who can create this sort of eruption of violence and who can snuff it out when he wants as well. Now, this is, uh, th th that seems to be the, the lower limits of brutality. We, believe me, folks, <laughs> we had it much, much worse. A lot more blood, there was a lot more head stomping. Um, it, was, it was, Mick had a good time putting this one together. 
Now, let me take a second to talk about the production design. You're going to notice, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of beautiful locations in this film, perfect locations. And, and, I, and I fear, you know, that the people will look at this movie and they're, they're going to say, hey, great location. When, in fact, the very selfless production design of Kirk Petricelli um, is all over the place. Much, 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 much of this movie was actually uh, built. Many of the sets were actually built, I should say. And, uh, but Kirk, you know, you look at the whole area right there, it simply looks, that looks like a location, that tower. That was built by Kirk Petricelli. Um, the, uh, the tower or the building where Colonel Winter is, that was built by Kirk Petricelli, but you would never actually know that. Uh, and uh, Kirk, I, I fear, may not get credit for it. It was a nice camera move by Shelley Johnson. You know, a real boom, and then we slide down. And, uh, you know, we assume that perhaps he is dead, Thumper. He has, been, he has been, in fact, shot. And now out of nowhere comes a second shot. And uh, we pretty much uh, allowed the extras just to jump at the sound of the, of the gunfire. It's pretty brutal. It's pretty heavy. And it really introduces us to the castle and to the conflict, which is now absolutely sincere, between Colonel Winter and General Irwin. Now, this set was built by Eloise Stammerjohn, uh, who did an amazing set job for us. This laundry was put together in literally half a day. Uh, we lost the location, which was a real laundry, and we had to build, build this laundry um, in, in, in the tiers. And um, I cannot thank her enough for the great work she did. She also worked for me on, uh, on The Contender. She's a wonderful gal. So here's Brian Goodman. And I talked to you about him a little bit before. Brian Goodman is in this film um, after having served actual time in a prison for things that I care not to discuss. Um, you can look up press articles about him, but uh, it was pretty intense. He was a guy whose life was reeling out of control. Um, you know, he had, uh, he, he had some problems with substance abuse. And... Uh, now he's become uh, an extraordinarily gifted actor. Uh, he was in a film I produced called Scenes of the Crime as well. And uh, you know, since the making of The Last Castle has, uh, has appeared in, in a couple of films, uh, a couple of them very high profile movies. You know, what, what, uh, what Brian always said to me was, I'll make him real. And boy, I mean, that character is absolutely real. And, and I don't even think it's because Brian can tap into uh, his own life experiences, which he certainly can but uh, because he's simply a very gifted actor um, who made a point sometime in his life that he was going to turn it around and listen to people, listen to people who maybe knew more than him on certain issues. And one of them is acting. And, uh, boy, he, did a, did a, he does a bang-up job in, uh, in our movie. It's a beautiful painting there that uh, Kirk Petricelli created. There's Frank Military. I talked to you a little bit about him before in... Um, in discussing the, uh, the arrival of Beaupre. He's a former writer, Frank. Dr. Thomas Bernard, 33rd Medical Unit. I like this scene very much. I don't think it's perfect, but I like it very much. I think the acting is very naturalistic. And in fact, I think that the dialogue is quite naturalistic uh, as well. You know, especially when you have somebody like Robert Redford delivering those lines. There he is interrupting himself again. It's a technique that he uses, I, I think, on purpose uh, in All the President's Men and in The Candidate and all those great movies in the 70s where you really counted on uh, sort of realism throughout the entire movie from A to Z. And there's Thumper. He's alive. God bless his, uh, his soul. 
He was hit by rubber bullets, and rubber bullets are going to play a very important part in this movie, of course. So I think that the lighting here is terrific. I think that the, the staging is, is quite good, and like I said, the performances are quite good. I like the cam move right there. But this is a, this is a section of the film where I think that um, I, I blew it a little bit because I think that the whole entrance of all the guys coming to see him should have been done in a wide shot. That way I could have sort of established the fact that he's being surrounded by everyone, that he doesn't want them uh, around him. I think that it's actually a little clumsy to do this all in mediums or in, or in a, or in a close-up. And uh, if I had to do it over again, boy, I, I sure would like to do it. When Bob Redford, who's a great director, came into the editing room with me, he himself uh, told me, uh, well, let's use the wide shot. I guess he simply assumed that I had done it. And, you know, I, I simply didn't think about it. Like I said, sometimes uh, things just disappear. And uh, that was, uh, that was uh, one of them. So we're getting some pretty important plot points here, um, including the fact that uh, Colonel Winter has basically murdered people uh, at, at the prison that he gets, uh, he basically, uh, they get shot in the head and, and they're killed. I've led real soldiers in more difficult situations than this, but you're not real soldiers anymore. And neither am I. There have been murders. There have been murders, he says. And all of a sudden, Redford's character stops, Irwin stops, maybe he's been convinced. But in fact, all he's going to do is completely dismiss these guys. And in a way, that's understandable. He's uh, led a full life in the military, he graduated from West Point about 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, he's had it. He's had it up to here with leading men. And uh, look where it's gotten him. It's gotten him into a prison uh, with these criminals, people that uh, have, le have led apparently pretty petty lives. And so now we get a little bit of Jerry Goldsmith music, and, and now Irwin's character is going to establish something else, which is that he has a grandson and he has a daughter, and uh, he, he basically will want to spend the rest of his life with them. He's going to establish exactly what he wants to do when he gets out of the, the, the prison. I didn't retire after that as I should have. I took one last assignment. It was a mistake. So, gentlemen, I'm done. I'm not fighting anyone or anything anymore. I'm doing my time here. I'm going home, and God willing, I'm going to sit on the porch and play a game of dominoes with my grandson, who I've never met. I fucking tell you, Doc. Call a three-star general a man. Why don't you call him dude? Oh, shut One of my problems with uh, my direction of the film is that I establish a little bit of texture here and there, but not nearly enough. You know, there was a guy getting tattooed, and here's um, Mark Ruffalo delivering, uh, delivering the mail. And while some may argue that you really need to just, uh, just jump right to story and deal just with story, establishing texture, I think, is extremely important. And I, I kind of wish that I had uh, a little bit more here. You know, sometimes we really are, and I did film some more, but I, I just didn't put it in the film. I, I felt my own sense of internal panic to, uh, to not have the film cluttered with too much, uh, well, let's just call it texture, with, uh, with not enough story. 22 to 20. Ah, Army-Navy game. I hate to, to say it, but the year that I shot this film, Army lost 22-20. There he is showing him the ring. The ring is the connection between the two of them, the West Point ring. 
Army doesn't usually lose the Army-Navy game, but we did that year, so I had to be honest to what was going on. 1981, so welcome back, celebration. So Mark Ruffalo, as Yates here, is uh, letting Irwin know that he and his father uh, served uh, together and, in fact, were in the same prisoner of war camp in Hanoi. He's trying to make a connection. No, he wasn't. After 30 years, everyone's a good man. The law. Hmm. How is he? How's your dad? He's not too good. He's dead. Sorry, what happened? Came home. Illingworth. Irwin. Okay, now, here comes a really important scene in the film, very interesting scene. It's the... Uh, the moment when General Irwin meets his daughter, Rosalie. And you know, I must say that we really debated whether or not to have this scene in the film for a long time. It wasn't written until about midway through the shoot. And uh, we didn't decide to put it in until a couple of weeks before the shoot ended. As you can see, we got the great Robin Wright Penn, and she truly is great and beautiful to, uh, to uh, appear in the film. She came in and did this one scene for us. She took a day, and uh, I think she's just magnificent in it. Uh, this year she also did The Pledge, which I think is probably, in my opinion, the best film that I've seen thus far in the year 2001. And I think her performance, the best female performance of the year thus far in 2001. Now, you know, we almost didn't put the scene in the film, and, and you know, it was tough getting Redford to agree to do it uh, until it, it met what uh, was his very stringent standards um, in screenplay writing, because we had to make sure it was necessary and didn't appear to be just trying to get a, an actress into the movie, because it really wasn't that. The reason why I wanted it in was this. General Irwin has to have a reason why he decides to go and start working with the men. Just a couple of minutes ago, he had told the men what are his goals. His goals are he wants to go home, be with his daughter, and be with his grandson. And now she's taking that away from him, and she does it pretty effectively. She completely blows him away. It's a very sad scene, and I think that the audience really empathizes with the Redford character, and in fact doesn't like the Rosalie character as a result. However, um, he's left with nothing. He has nothing anymore. His only family right now are the prisoners that are with him. And uh, if he wants to go on having a raison d'etre in his life, then he simply must decide to lead them, because that's what he does. He leads. It's a little moment from Redford there where he looks down at her, at her hand on his, um, on his arm, which is a very sort of uh, uh, formal way to uh, show affection, and I think that he reacts to it beautifully. He's very delicate here, Redford, and I've never seen him, by the way, be a parent in a movie, let alone the parent of an adult. Uh, in fact, many things about Bob in this film are, are very impressive, and, and one of them, it seems, is the realization that, you know, Bob, even though he looks like he's 30, is, uh, is, is in his 60s, and and uh, Robin Wright Penn may well have been a love interest for him in a movie a few years ago, and now he's fully accepted her as, as his daughter. And I think it's pretty profound and, uh, and a pretty wonderful moment of realization for Redford as an actor, and I think it's very freeing for him a as well. And I think this is one of his best scenes in the film, and in fact one of the best scenes that I've, I think I've ever seen him do. He's truly hurt, truly defeated. When we showed this movie to audiences uh, before the film was actually released and had them, you know, go through a research and grading procedure, the scene bothered them. It bothered them, I think, because he, this is the most devastating hit that he takes in the entire film.
When I was in first grade, I got straight A's. And there's a great smile from Robin. She's, uh, she's giving him a hint that maybe she'll be there for him. Just the smallest hint with that smile. And here is Aguilar, Clifton Collins, with that salute. Okay, now, I gotta tell you guys something. Look at this salute from Redford. He's, he tries his best. He honestly does. It's, it's a, now, that's a good salute. I had to do 20 takes. 20 takes for this guy to get a salute right. Basically, this was uh, Redford's way of rebelling against uh, the army in this film, or the right wing, by uh, not giving me a proper salute. Eventually, he would give me one, but uh, it just took forever. And I think it's ironic that he's going to be teaching uh, Aguilar how to salute here. Why are you here? What did you do? Well, well that's just it. I, I that whole stone wall in the background and uh, that whole edifice in the background there was built by Kirk Petrocelli. So again, just look at the production design there, and it's really just so real that, uh, you know, Kirk isn't going to get any credit for it at all. I wish that I had uh, staged this slightly better. Uh, and mostly with the extras. Look how far back the extras are, in re and in this shot, too. In reality, uh, people, there'd be more people crossing like that one uh, right right there. Uh, there would be people that may uh, t t be taking a look at these two characters, which they don't really do. Uh, some people may interrupt them in conversation. You know, I, I again, I just wish I had uh, paid more attention to that, and, uh, and I'll get it in the next film, I think. Years, and you're a violent criminal to five seconds. It's a very nice piece of dialogue and uh, between uh, Redford and between Clifton Collins here. And, and I remember very well on this day. By the way, this is the first time we see any blue in the film at all is the uh, little manual right there. I remember when this uh, scene f uh, finished filming. Uh, it was one of those days where the whole crew left on a high that we had really accomplished something that day. And we sensed that there was a real connection between two actors. That in the end, it, it really boils down to the writing and, and, the, and the acting. And... Uh, it just really, it just really simply hit home that we had something special here in terms of that performance. A salute's about respect, son. Respect for yourself, the service, and the. Flag. Now we're going to go up to uh, to Gandolfini. He's wearing his army sweat outfit. He had just been working out. I had cut out a whole scene of uh, Jim working out. Look at that. You see, Redford, the guy can't salute. He always had his thumb in the wrong place. Poor guy. Well, I tried. His very name was spoken with a reverence, as if the syllables themselves conveyed what it meant to be a soldier. Here's Gandolfini as Winter, expressing his, um, his absolute disappointment in his hero. Can't even watch. He does it so well. You know, he does it with such sincerity. I think that Gandolfini underplayed this role extremely well. He could have been a very sneering, evil role. And in fact, he's a guy who we empathize with because uh, isn't it true that we may very well have the same amount of antipathy for somebody who we thought had uh, dissed us so badly? So on this night, it actually was pouring rain, but we had to add our own rain. Now, I still don't understand this. It has something to do with, uh, w w with the, w the way that rain is lit, but you can't see rain um, on film, basically. 
you have to provide your own rain, make it much thicker, and then add some backlighting. And so in addition to all, it was really storming. I mean, it was bad. It was Noah bad. And uh, Clifton Collins had to stand in it for hours and hours and hours. And that's him really shivering. And, but I stood in there with him. I put on a raincoat, though. And here's a half-shutter process that Shelley Johnson used. It almost looks like snow falling down. And here is um, General Irwin, and he's going to now get involved. And he gets involved because he's a leader. And remember, the theme of the movie is very simple. Leaders lead. It's what they do. We had uh, previously, we had heard the entire dialogue there between Steve Burton and Clifton Collins. And it was the idea of my producer, Robert Lawrence, to uh, take out the, that dialogue, to sort of have it uh, just be from the point of view completely of uh, General Irwin, which I think he was right on. It, it, was, uh, it's, it was much more effective. I kind of wish I'd had the camera facing Irwin's, Irwin uh, dead on there to see his expression more full on. I think it's quite beautiful what Shelley did with the lighting there, but I lost some of the, uh, some of the features and uh, some of the expressiveness that uh, Bob Redford was giving us. He doesn't have to do this. Look, just, just step back to the prison. I know a thing or two about the disciplining of soldiers. Prisoner Aguilar, resume your punishment. The punishment is over. Aguilar, now I'm we're going to get a line you. here, right? Now. You're better than this. Okay, and uh, I'll take credit for that line. Not that it's any big deal, but when I was at West Point and I was a cadet and the new tactical officer came in to inspect my room, he found a little bit of dust on, in some place that was absolutely out of anyone's reach or sight. And in disgust, he looked at me and he said, you're better than this. And uh, it made me feel very small, but made me want to reach for greater heights, especially when reaching for dust. I love the lighting on, uh, the lighting in the background there, especially the way that Shelley employed uh, the lamps in the background. It's sort of this uh, bluish hue that is interrupted by that yellow, I think is pretty exquisite and, and, and pretty beautiful. I also love the way that the um, ranks for both Peretz and for Colonel Winter are sort of highlighted in this rain. I think it's little touches like that that I can never come up with that you really have to count on the brains of your uh, director of photography for. You're missing a shot. I should have gotten a shot of Aguilar on the ground. But, you know, I think that was really an issue of time. Sir. You know, these rain machines are a big deal. They really take up a, take up a lot of time. I, I really began to learn something, though, um, between The Contender, which was made for a few million, and this movie, which was made for at least ten times more than, than The Contender. What money buys is time, and time is by far the most valuable asset that you can have on a, on a set. Even on this film, with all the, you know, the money and the schedule that we had, uh, I don't think I had enough time. And I, I, I doubt you'll ever find a filmmaker who will tell you, yeah, I had all the time I needed. You know, the, when, as I become a more experienced director, I will learn to prioritize my shots better and better to understand what is really needed and what is really a problem. I probably should have gotten shots of uh, some of the prisoners that we have come to know, uh, like Beaupre and Enriquez, and especially... Mark Ruffalo's Yates character on the ground. That would have been uh, very effective to see them watching what's going on. Here's a, here is a really fun and interesting scene. It's uh, General Irwin. He, he's doing the punishment rounds right now. What's going 
and uh, the men are betting on him. So we're establishing a few things here. One is, uh, once again, that Yates is the bookie, that most of the men have not come around to Irwin's side yet, uh, that there is some division in, in the troops about uh, the value of General Irwin. Um, we establish the, uh, you know, the, the strength and muscularity of General Irwin and his, uh, and his zeal and his will to go on under the most dire of circumstances. Now, Irwin, in this particular scene, is uh, carrying 25-pound rocks, and we had 25-pound rocks there, but we had a bunch of fake rocks as well. And Redford insisted on carrying the real rocks because he thought that uh, that would simply be better for performance, and as a point of pure um, empirical uh, truth, that is exactly the case. It's a better performance if you carry the real rocks. And he carried them all afternoon long and all morning long for two days. And in the same way that um, General Irwin therefore inspires the prisoners to be better men, uh, Redford inspired the, his fellow actors, uh, these young actors who had very little of any movie experience, uh, to really accentuate their own acting by doing things like carrying real rocks. Now, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but that guy is in good shape. <laughs> you know, uh, Bob is 64 years old. That's a six and a four. You know, that's one year away from uh, Social Security. Most people don't have uh, their teeth at that point, let alone that level of muscularity. And uh, Bob Redford, at the age of 64, is in better shape than I've ever been in my life, period. And um, when he wasn't reading the dictionary, Bob would be working out or um, you know, lifting weights or playing tennis or, or what have you. And he simply went on and on and on carrying those, those real rocks. I think I would have survived five minutes of it, maybe, maybe 10. But uh, Bob simply, simply kept at it. I think it's a very important scene in the film uh, because uh, it is the galvanizing moment. It is uh, the moment where the men realize that they have, for once, a real leader in their midst a man who's not going to be conquered by uh, Colonel Winter. I also love Jerry's score here very much. And um, by the way, I believe that this is the first scene where we actually see blue in the sky. As a director, I'm very powerful, and I control the weather, you see. This was, uh, this was a, a fun shot for us also. We went from, uh, from slow motion here and we're going to ramp it up as soon as Beaupre, played by Brian Goodman, hits him. Sound of helicopters in the background. Boom. Now we're back to uh, full-on motion. Doc comes to the rescue. Follow. Again, we're, you know, we're establishing the fact that not everybody is on Irwin's side yet. He's won most of the people over, but not everybody. And that the best sort of leadership comes from, you know, your inner self, which will lead to leading by example. There's Redford lifting a real rock, you know, and you know, th this exhaustion at this point is, is, is real. The heavy eye blink is real. goes. He has won or has he? 
as he won Ruffalo over Yates's character. Discipline ordered was one to one labor. It doesn't matter where the stones are, you have to continue. What's he supposed to do, Captain? There are some shots in the film that uh, I admire, of course, more than others. I think that Shelley Johnson is one of the best working DPs today. We're about to come up on a shot that is extremely simple in both its movement and in, in, in its composition, yet there is a beauty to it that I cannot quite explain. We're going to see it uh, right now. I simply love uh, the way that the flag hangs there, that it never, it never seems to really cross it. I love the color of it, and I love the movement in the, in the scene. I love this, uh, this push in on, on Bob as he looks up at Gandolfini. It's war. Okay. All right. Everybody to the tears for count. Let's go. Move it. Inmates were the tears for face to badge. Now we're going to come up with a line that was uh, written by Walter Parks, who was the, the president of production over at uh, DreamWorks. It's, uh, and, I, and I think it's really the most galvanizing line in the movie. Here it comes. It's not his wall. It's your wall. It's not his wall. It's your wall. You need to lead yourself. Basically. Come down, we'd like to see you. Here's a, a scene made up of only two shots. One on Bob and one on Jim. They clean you up okay? Yes. The cut above your eye, it's not too serious, I hope. I'm okay. I darkened this up as much as I could. <clears throat> I think that um, one of the, my flaws uh, in, in this movie is that I never really demonized the whole enough. And, uh, you know, I wish that I had done that. I guess the reason why I, I didn't feel energized to do it on, uh, you know, while we were shooting the movie is because the whole is really a staple of uh, prison films, that the whole has its own identity that people bring a whole lot of psychological baggage to it anyway. But in, in retrospect, uh, I wish simply that we had seen a little bit more devastation from him as he sits in the hole. On the other hand, I really like the dialogue in the scene, and I love the performance that both of, the, uh, both of my actors give here. Creeps in. I just have to open an inmate's file and see what he's done. I see what he's capable of. I see the worst in him. And that makes my job easier. It crystallizes my mission. That's all General Irwin needs to hear. He really begins to understand that he's dealing basically with a sociopath, a man who is uh, behaving in an evil manner, yet doesn't understand that. He thinks that he's behaving completely and absolutely appropriately. And that... Uh, this is the kind of animal that he must now contend with, that there is no rationale that will uh, service their relationship at all. As I said before, this movie was written by uh, David Scarf and Graham Yost. They're the credited writers, but in several Hollywood films and several films in general, other writers come aboard and uh, they will or will, not, or will not receive credit. And um, Bill Nicholson, 
who uh, received Academy Award nominations for Shadowlands and uh, for Gladiator, uh, was one of the writers that uh, we hired to do a, a little bit of touch of work on this film. We asked him to, you know, we picked his brain, asked him for some ideas, and and uh, he came up with this concept right here of the, of the. It's a staple, I know, of prison films, but uh, he came up with the idea of having all the men using their dog tags. Uh, so, in other words, accentuating the fact that this is a military prison, and using their dog tags is making them realize that they're soldiers again, and. You know, in essence, it is the welcoming home of a of a general. I also love the theme that Jerry Goldsmith uses here. It's the introduction of a of a, sort of a B theme for for the film. And now, in earnest, does begin the relationship between Yates and uh, and Irwin. Again, reestablishing the fact that he's a bookie. And and what is it about a bookie that's special? A bookie doesn't take one bet, he doesn't take one side, he doesn't take another side. A bookie is always in the middle. And that is the essence of Yeats' character. He takes no position, takes no stance, he is always in the middle. And, and, I, and I think that the fact that uh, David and Graham came up with that concept is a pretty wonderful metaphor for the character in and, in and of itself. That's right. Any squares left? Now, I want you to remember something. He is willing, Irwin is, to uh, make a bet on whether or not he's going to kill himself and wants to know uh, what week is left in the squares, uh, what, what week is left open for him to kill himself. He's told nine weeks, and uh, Yates uh, won't take the bet because he sincerely believes that the general will, quote-unquote, off himself simply in order to win the bet. You know, my father said you kept him alive in Hanoi. My father said you kept him alive in Hanoi. Says, uh, says Yates. And now comes what I think is a very nice speech. Torture, the first thing they do is to try to break down your sense of self. In which, basically, Erwin uh, credits the men that uh, were under his command with keeping him alive and not the other way around. And, and I considered not having this uh, speech in the movie at all, that uh, there was a problem there, that uh, perhaps saying this very nice thing about his father would be something that would serve as a sort of connective tissue between the two men when it actually I needed them to have a conflict in the film. But what it, uh, what it really serves, I think, is to, again, create a metaphor or create a mood for the rest of the film that Irwin is going to count on these men to survive and not necessarily the other way around, although they may think that. Well, Prey wants to know what he meant by it's our wall and not Winter's wall. Now... I know that we've been using the word metaphor pretty freely in this commentary, but here it, here it applies more than any other time. The wall, um, in its um, earliest construction in the film, represents leadership under Winter's command. Look, it's completely disheveled. It's all over the place. There's no unity in the wall itself um, at all. And uh, once uh, General Irwin takes control of the wall, it's, a big, uh, it's going to become a, a very efficient and beautiful-looking machine. And eventually, in the battle scene at the end of the film, it is used to protect the soldiers altogether. So the concept of what happens to men under one form of leadership, the leadership of fear and intimidation, uh, will present us the wall in one form, and leadership by example and by pride uh, will give us a completely different wall a little bit later on. I guess as he was building I'm not sure I uh, had enough coverage here. 
and I'm not sure that I had enough reactions from all the actors uh, that I really needed in, in this scene. Uh, you know, it's, um, and, and I think that Brian and, and, and Thumper here are, uh, Thumper, I mean George Scott, are really quite good. You know, when you have uh, actors uh, of this quality, I think you should give them as much screen time as possible. This was a much longer scene. We showed them actually trying to push the wall down, and uh, it was at the suggestion of uh, my producer, Robert Lawrence, that we cut immediately to the wall being, uh, being knocked down. I think that uh, the celebration is a little bit too effusive here, and it's my fault. You know, I directed it that way, and it seemed good on the day, and uh, right now it seems a little bit too intense for me. But I like that part. I like simple, the simple charm of Clifton Collins and the reaction of Redford here. This was a scene that was not in the screenplay that I just sort of added in. I thought it was important uh, to show um, Colonel Winter, played by Jim Gandolfini, to uh, have yet one more, um, you know, screw job by General Irwin against Colonel Winter. Uh, by the end of the film, when they have their final confrontation, uh, you know, Winter must be at his wit's end. So you see the wall right now. The wall belongs neither to Irwin nor to Winter. It's simply a mess on the ground. But um, here it comes. Here it comes. The wall is being rebuilt by the prisoners who are now cooperating. In the, in the screenplay, it said uh, something like, the uh, wall is built by the prisoners over several days, eventually working hand by hand. And, and when, we, uh, w when we scheduled it, they basically gave me three hours to shoot the whole scene because it was just two lines in the screenplay, just as it was only two words in the Gone with the Wind screenplay when it said Atlanta burns. Not that this is anywhere near as big, but this was going to take much longer. So I decided to sort of shoot this as a um, uh, time-lapse photography using a moving dolly, uh, meaning that we would see the wall built, but uh, we would see it with a moving camera, which I thought was kind of unusual. I, I don't really recall seeing that, although I'm probably wrong. Uh, basically, everything has been done, and to say that you are the first to do anything is, is arrogant and almost always incorrect. There is the fake salute, the first time we see the fake salute um, coming from somebody other than Aguilar. That's Mr. John Hammond singing, and it's a Tom Waits song. And uh, Scott Stambler, who put on my temporary music, he found this song, and uh, I just fell in love with it and simply had to have it. It took a while to shoot this rain sequence because we did, this rain sequence was done on a sunny day. We had to wait for the sun to move because you could see on the back wall there, the shadows of all the crane equipment. I think it works quite well, the scene. I'm very happy with it, and it is by far the most light scene in the film, according to all the research that, uh, that we did on it. This was also the one scene where Redford came in and uh, gave me a lesson on directing. Um, he was really very good about not doing that, but uh, I, I originally had him right here in this position as we dissolved into the scene. And uh, he, he came up with the idea of General Irwin walking from the back of the frame to the front of the frame like that. And, uh, he, you know, his, his instruction to me or his, uh, his lesson to me was that it, it was just simply best for 
of the lead characters to direct the attention of the eye of the viewer to be moving and to be moving in, into a position. What I really loved about working with Redford, and a lot of people have asked me, was it difficult working with a director, is the fact that he was a director. And, uh, you know, as a director, he understands what a uh, pain in the ass actor is, uh, although we won't mention any names. I don't think he mentioned any names to me, but he didn't want to be that guy. And, um, you know, you, you hear about superstars being problem children on a set. I, I couldn't have had a better partner on the set than, uh, than, than Bob Redford. When he gets on that set, he is simply extraordinary. He's kind and will take, uh, take my directorial notes very seriously and uh, will really insist on, on getting it right. He is uh, the exact opposite of, of lazy. He is industrious and focused and absolutely a charm to have on the set, as was Jim Gandolfini. Hearts and minds. Sir? building a structure of loyalty. I originally had shot this entire scene from the previous uh, shot that we had done from the ground looking up, and I went and uh, reshot this whole section here because we really need to get close-ups, especially of Gandolfini saying the general is building himself an army. Here's an interesting mistake. I've got two funny lines here. Who, sir? The Who, Prince sir? Of Venezuela. The Prince of Venezuela gets a big laugh. And then Steve Burton says, uh, General Irwin, and he responds by saying, Mr. Irwin. That General Irwin, Mr. Irwin bit is really very important to the film, yet it gets lost out and, uh, by, by the laughter of the Prince of Venezuela bit. Uh, I don't know what I could have done differently there, but it's a problem, believe it or not. Uh, this scene I like, uh, I like quite a bit, and I think it's uh, staged well, and I, and I like the use of the extras back there. I like uh, s sort of the way that they're uh, looking like very small ants in, in the background. That to both men, right now, uh, perhaps they don't have a great significance. That they're being used as pawns, perhaps, by both men. Certainly by Colonel Winter, but let's also think about General Irwin for a second. Is he... Is he merely using the men as a, as a piece of ego manipulation against Colonel Winter? And this was something that was not in the screenplay either, but we did on the day. No soldier has died needlessly under my command, Mr. Irwin. This is a hint as to what uh, may have happened to, uh, to General Irwin to get him into the prison in the first place. Because up until this point, we don't have any idea why he's in the prison. And uh, we won't know for a, a little while, but that's a hint. And it certainly is something that appears to have gotten under the skin of, uh, of General Irwin. And uh, I think Redford plays it very well. That, that line, I don't know, uh, do you, it, uh, it comes from uh, Redford himself. He improvised it on, on the day. Well, in about two minutes, there will be no more wall. And here's the, um, really the centerpiece of the movie, literally the centerpiece of the film as the wall is about to be demolished by uh, Colonel Winter as a sign of his own strength. It's his chest move right now. Here's Aguilar looking at it, it's his pride and joy. And again, you know, the, the ant farm down there being viewed by, by both men. Uh, Steve Burton, Captain Peretz, uh, beginning to understand that maybe he's on the wrong side simply by his, his expression. Now, the question of how to shoot uh, Aguilar, literally how to 
have them shot by, uh, by, by, the, by the marksman uh, is, a, is a rather central issue here. And we really had a, a couple of choices. One was to do it in a very long shot from the towers. And I'll show you what that shot would have been. Uh, I, I did shoot that. I did photograph that. I was inspired by the, uh, the way that Tom Hanks was shot in Saving Private Ryan. Ultimately, we did not use it. What we elected to do instead was to uh, actually show the bullet connecting with his head. Because we're using rubber bullets, we can actually uh, do that. We can actually show what the net effect was. We don't have to worry about uh, you know, a bullet actually penetrating into the brain, which would have been uh, far too gruesome. This would have been the shot, the one we just saw, uh, where we would have seen him being shot. Instead, we get it right there. And uh, we see the connection of, of the bullet. We, see, we cut then to the close-up of Redford and now to uh, the immobile body of Clifton Collins playing Aguilar. We have an opportunity now to get that haunting Jerry Goldsmith score. And uh, Redford very simply manages to pull something off with uh, the very tiniest expressions, with uh, barely a movement of a facial uh, muscle, we see, uh, we see and simply, and simply the movement of the eyes. We, uh, we see the inner workings of his brain and his decision to do what he must. Takes his dog tags, put the, puts them inside his uh, undershirt as they are to be properly worn, assuming the role of the officer and the general that he actually is. All the men are assembled to look at the destruction of the wall that they had built. Um, it seems like a defeat, a small one, you know, the destruction of the wall, but a very, very symbolic one. And um, in uh, walks General Irwin, his hands uh, in a very officer-like way behind his, uh, you know, behind his back. And he moves to Delwo, tells him he was a sergeant major, and boom, taking command. The men don't necessarily know whether or not to follow. But in the end, they are soldiers. That is simply a part of their character. And they're going to snap into action. They may be rusty. They may not quite know what, uh, what they're doing. But in the end, it will all come back to them. And they will all form into, into position. The only person not doing it is Yates. Something catches the attention of uh, Colonel Winter. And, uh, and he moves back. He, he will move into position to see exactly what is going on. Right here. Now, here's something that uh, Bob Redford doesn't often do in movies, and that is give, literally give speeches. He did it in The Candidate, but I'm, I'm talking about movie speeches. It's just not something that he has done in the past, and uh, he fell right into it. Uh, he's a great professional actor. And uh, the speech that he gives here is, is very inspiring and very beautiful. And by the way, I chopped out about half of it. They're deep in the sea, deep in the jungles, on foreign battlefields. A rifle driven into the ground with a helmet on top. Much of the speech was actually uh, written by uh, Redford himself. And that is the tribute that this man has earned. And I think that uh, he was really able to grasp how a leader leads, how a leader can use 
emotions, not demagoguery, but you know, you know, pure human, um, selfless emotions to to lead men. Again, we emphasize the Gentlemen, ring. Corporal Ramon Aguilar, United States. Now here comes something kind of interesting. All the men are about uh, to uh, to sing from the halls of Montezuma, and you know everyone knows uh, everyone knows this song. And and when I, I originally read the screenplay, I thought this might be a little bit corny, and uh, you know that uh, the audiences may not just buy it and may even heckle it. But I th the solution I thought though was to uh, diminish the sentimentality of it by having them uh, do something which w would happen to one and all of us which was this. You simply forget the words, or don't know the words to the second stanza, and, and so you add some humor into what is a very emotional moment and a very dry moment. Even uh, Colonel Winter has to laugh at this. And I think that it ended up working pretty well. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it, pretty proud of it. Um, I also like the photography here uh, very much uh, on, uh, on Winter and Peretz. It's just the right blend of of light in the forefront and darkness and uh, slight light in the background. Sound the chow horn. Yes, sir, you still have about 10 minutes to sound it. And now something else is about to happen here, yes, sir. which is something that we should have been doing all along, is we should have been questioning the motivations of, uh, of, of the great general, huh? Well, here's the salute. This is a this is a fun part of the film. It seems to always uh, take audiences by surprise. We should be uh, monitoring and questioning the motivations of uh, of the general, because um, a after all, while he's teaching uh, all the men about pride, he's also in a way making their lives more miserable and teaching them not to obey the rules. And uh, for that very reason, Aguilar may very well have died. And uh, so we have to have a voice that represents that, and, and here he is. He is, uh, the, the, he is the one voice. And, but we don't want it to come across as um, overly self-righteous. And so that's where you need an actor of the simplicity of Mark Ruffalo. Why is it that Aguilar had to die? And that scene really is about him, and, uh, which is why I chose to end directly on him. We had sort of a little magical dissolve here. We're, uh, we're on Yates, and he sort of dissolves into one of the ponds that is on the chessboard. Very good. This is kind of a funny uh, little gag here. You have checkmate in five moves. He moves. He says, why, uh, why do you move if I have checkmate in five? He says, because I have checkmate in three. When anyone that knows anything about chess knows that the real, even the grandmasters can't really see the other players' moves, two or three moves, uh, ahead of time. But it works well. It seemed to work. This is, in my opinion, uh, the best scene in the film. Or it certainly is the best scene that exists in the film. Uh, I think that the performance between uh, Bob and Jim here is, is simply extraordinary. A and the reason for that is that both of them completely got their characters and completely got the motivations perfectly. Uh, when you are ready to go to war, there are several steps. There is the confrontation, uh, then there is the rationalization, which we went through in the, uh, uh, when Erwin was in the hole. Now we come up to negotiation, and then there will be full-out war. And in this scene, he's come to negotiate, Gandolfini has. 
he realizes that um, if he goes down the same path, he's going to lose. He has a lot of power, as long as he doesn't use it. And so he's going to throw a concession to, uh, to General Irwin's character by telling them that the men can salute if they want, they can call him chief if, if they want, but they're going to have to do it under his terms, under Winter's terms. That way, Irwin wins and he wins, and uh, neither man will be humiliated. So if the inmates can confine themselves... Now, the way that I described uh, to Bob the way that I wanted his character was uh, to, to, to react to, uh, to Gandolfini was the same way that my dad used to react to me. You see with that nod there? I, sometimes I would do something wrong when I was a teenager, and I would explain myself, and he would just nod his head as if he were understanding it all along. Really what he's saying is, yeah, that's fully what I expect you to be saying, Rod. And then he would hit him with, the, then he would hit me with uh, the big one. You know, that's all very nice, but you're still grounded for six weeks. And that's basically what he's saying here. It's not okay. We're going to come after you, and, uh, and you're going down for the count. Notice how um, Redford is, is always shot, uh, just him in the frame, because it's really his scene. But here, we're over Redford onto Gandolfini. In other words, uh, Redford is basically in every shot of the scene, and, uh, and Jim is not in every shot of the scene. It's not about him. It's about Redford taking command. It's about General Irwin taking uh, command. It really is my favorite scene uh, in, in, in the movie. And uh, this sort of uh, slow fuse that uh, Jim brings here, I think, is just perfect. As uh, do I think that it's uh, Redford's challenge here is perfect. That's the way you want to win. Geez, I, I sort of thought that line would find itself into the trailer, but it didn't. That's a nice shot, too. Shelley really knows how to movie camera, Shelley Johnson. He really, really does. And now, here comes the great Delroy Lindo. You know, what we discovered from audiences as they were watching this film and research screenings is how much they love Delroy Lindo. Uh, we, we considered many, many actors for uh, what essentially amounts to, you know, a 20-minute uh, 20 minutes of screen time cameo, maybe, or maybe even 15 minutes. And uh, we couldn't find anybody that had quite Delroy's presence. Even the, even the presence of his shaved head, the light bouncing off of it, everything, everything's absolutely perfect. He's very magisterial. I completely buy him as a, as a general. He's also something like eight foot three. I mean, he's a huge man, Delroy. He's a really big guy and very, very imposing. By the way, this is one of my favorite shots in the film. It's a split diopter, meaning that we've got um, focus both up front and in, and in the back using a special lens. Um, you've seen that in, in a few films, but I use it throughout this entire movie. The split diopter became sort of the signature uh, piece of camera lens uh, for this film. And uh, we did that one in, in a mirror. We'll do it later, also, and I'll point it out to you. I think it's very cool. I really love it. Possible, and I'm not sure that this is the right place for that. This was a, a fun scene for audiences because it was the first time that they saw Colonel Winter get a comeuppance from somebody who just hadn't existed in the entire movie, uh, you know, up until now. Now here, General Irwin awaits his friend, General Wheeler, played by Delroy Lindo. And uh, we have sort of a fun moment here. It's, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty big laugh, what we have coming up here. Um, I believe it's probably the only time in the history of his career 
that you will hear Robert Redford use the word hand job. And it sounds pretty good coming from him. The, uh, <laughs> you know, in a, in a movie like this, you really want your laughs. You know, it's a pretty dramatic film. It deals with a pretty stark topic. And uh, to, to get a big laugh uh, now and then is extremely helpful. You know, we, wanna, we want audiences to have a good time after all is said and done. Uh, now, he, you know, obviously um, he's looking at the clock there. Something is up. One thing I liked about the shooting of this particular scene is that sort of every section is shot in a different way. This was done with uh, singles on, on both men, a very specific uh, kind of, uh, of lighting. And, um, you know, when we, you're going to see that when we come back to that sequence, that's another diopter shot with, um, by the way, with, uh, if, if you look at it with the um, different focuses up front and in the back, exactly the same. Now we're going to go back to the cell and, uh, or back to the meeting room. And again, it's photographed differently, using a lot of uh, dark and using the, the backlighting pretty effectively. Here's another diopter shot with uh, the clock being in focus and uh, Colonel Winter being in focus as well in, uh, in the background. Again, the diopter is, I think, is my favorite lens. And uh, you'll see it used repeatedly, repeatedly in, uh, in this film. Obviously, something big is about to go down. And now we're going to return to the um, we're going to return to the meeting room, and again it's sort of a different setup. Every time we come back, you know, Shelley came up with a different setup to use. This is a panning camera that we're about to see, which is uh, something that I, I, I quite like to do, um, and and I like to do it at unexpected times. That little laugh by Redford there, by the way, I think was um, extremely naturalistic and something that he added to the equation. Again. A completely different setup there, pushing, uh, pushing in on both the actors. I don't give a rat's ass. I don't care. What I care about is you and getting you out of here. Now, haven't you punished again? We emphasize enough? the ring. What I did was wrong. Jim. The ring again is the only connection that uh, General Irwin has to his past, uh, to his past life. So all the action that you're about to see right now was uh, really choreographed by, by Mick Rogers. And I really can't uh, say enough about Mick Rogers. Uh, Mick, uh, Mick did the fast and the furious. He did all the action scenes there. And in fact, you know, that's like saying that uh, somebody directed all the sex scenes in a porno film. I mean, you know, th that movie was all action, and um, I, I even question what the actual director of that film did, although I think he did a very good job with some of the actors in that film. But boy, Mick really did a bang-up uh, bang job. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I went and I remember I saw The Fast and the Furious in Nashville with all the stuntmen from our film, which were all the stuntmen from The Fast and the Furious. So needless to say, there was a lot of applause uh, for that film at that time. You know, when, uh, when I was being uh, tasked with picking a second director, I looked at Mick's resume, and I saw one film on there, and I knew that I had to have him. And that one film was, uh, was Braveheart. He had uh, basically choreographed all the battle scenes in that film, and uh, some of the most realistic and wonderful battle scenes in the, in the history of movies. You know, I, I really had no experience uh, directing or dealing with action at all, 
And, uh, you know, Mick taught me a, a lot of rules, which is, you know, and a lot of lessons. The primary one of which is that everything is, comes in little bits and pieces. We, we can't all get it all in, in, in one shot. And um, that's why in action scenes you're going to see so many different, uh, so many different shots. And you know, I, and, I, and I love this. You know, I love all this helicopter stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty stunning. Uh, you know, to think about the coordination of using a helicopter, and flying a helicopter above the helicopter, and flying inside the helicopter. It's pretty scary if you think about it. I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't in any of those helicopters. And here is a scene where I think that we really get the essence and we really get the power of Delroy Lindo as, as an actor and, and also the subtleties of Jim Gandolfini. You know, Jim is trying to, uh, to, you know, to preserve his dignity. He's trying to demonstrate to his general, to his boss, that, um, that he did the right thing. And, and I think that the, the, he's just so appropriately smug here without being disrespectful. Again, as I said before, Jim Gandolfini really gets his characters. He really understands their essence. He really understands them at, uh, you know, at, at, their, at their root. Nevertheless, if I hear one more story about a man dying under your command, you are through here. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. You see, there he is, you know, a, a, tinge, right. of, uh, a tinge of of resentment, a tinge of anger, a tinge of being humiliated, uh, but no disrespect. It's quite interesting how he's able to pull that off. But I see the only way that's going to happen is if you request it. That is true, sir. So you just, you tell me you can't handle him. He's gone. Oh, I think I can handle him, sir. You watch yourself, Colonel. Okay, now. We're going to have a very, very interesting scene coming up. Eugene R. Irwin. First of all, let me tell you that uh, this is half a scene. I cut out um, a, a huge uh, portion of the speech that is given here from the film, and, and you can see it in the deleted scenes. Uh, in, in that sequence, basically, uh, Jim uh, told the men that they were no longer soldiers, that they were simply shadows of soldiers. It was beautifully written. That I know was written specifically by David Scarpa, uh, but I, I felt that it sort of stopped the film. That uh, as as well delivered as Jim uh, de delivers it, and as well written as it is, that uh, it didn't get to the point fast enough and wasn't uh, consistent with the character. And I f simply felt that it had to go. Although I think it's wonderful, and you can and you can certainly see it. What I what I really love here is the camera movement. You know, uh, the camera moves 360 degrees and uh, around uh, Jim here, although we cut out of it now and then. And the, um, the camera had to be set up on a special rig. It took several days to put together. And, and I think that it, it was lit beautifully. I think that everything about this scene has uh, a certain amount of uh, cinematic beauty to it. Uh, no thanks to me, thanks to our production designer, Kirk Petrocelli, who built this in all these tiers and uh, built the rig, or built the ability to build the rig, uh, and to Shelley, who moves the camera the way he does, and to Shelley, who lit the film the, in, in the sequence the way, the way that it does. That's uh, Sergeant Major Davis, who was pulling Enriquez out. He was our technical advisor um, on the film. Now, uh, this entire sequence, the essence of it, 
was never in the original screenplay at all. It was uh, the idea of, uh, of Walter Parks, uh, who felt that uh, at this point in the film that we needed to uh, heighten the, uh, not so much the villainry of Gandolfini's character, Colonel Winter, but you know, there is gonna be an uprising later in the film and, uh, and he felt that uh, you know, perhaps we need to earn it more. And that this sequence, which is uh, I think absolutely now integral to the film, uh, was necessary. Uh, you know, the colonel going a hair too far, and a guy who's trying to distance uh, colonel, the, the general from his men. It's also a good chess move, uh, moving the general away from his men. And uh, in fact, this sequence that we're about to see was also created or was suggested by, uh, by Walter. Here is um, Redford eating by himself, completely isolated from, uh, from the men. Uh, after all, he had, uh, it, it was his fault that uh, not only that Aguilar died, they think, but that eight men were sent to the hole. And uh, there's a great I told you so look on Ruffalo's face here. I really uh, am impressed with actors who can summon up so much with simple looks, like the one that Redford is giving here, this look of surprise. As the men who are coming out of the hole, we can tell because they're wearing the orange jumpsuit of the hole, which was established earlier in the film, are now coming and they are surrounding him. And they're going to ask him a very special question here, or Brian uh, Goodman as Beaupre is going to ask him a very special question here. What do we do so now? What do we do now? Which, by the way, for all you film historians, was the last line from the movie The Candidate, one of my all-time favorites. If you haven't seen it, well, put this DVD away and go and rent it. It's a great movie, a masterpiece, in fact. problem is, is this flush beat you straight. I don't play poker, Mr. Yates. I play chess. And in chess, you play with somebody long enough to come to realize that the first three moves are usually the same. Chess, huh? What was his first move? What was the first move? Oh, I remember on this day, you know, you put a football in, in Redford's uh, hands and, or put anything like a baseball glove or a, or a baseball, and he'll be out, you know, throwing the ball around with the crew and with the other actors uh, all day long. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was very fun. He, he, he liked to get out baseball mitts and throw balls, uh, baseballs uh, with the other actors. And I know what all of them were thinking. Here I am, I'm throwing a ball around with Roy Hobbs. It was really quite a vision. Yates, why don't you do yourself a favor and run along? Pawns. That prisoner walking away, who is that? Uh, that's, that's Yates. He was an Apache pilot, but now he's a lowlife. A hustler, he takes bets. On what? Anything. Fights, the weather. You know what another mistake of this film was, I, I think, is um, that so many shots uh, have a Gandolfini and Colonel Winter, that is, up in his office. I wish that I had uh, staged some scenes in some different locations just to, um, just to vary it up a bit, although the reality of the situation is that uh, that is where he normally would be. Here's another diopter shot. Uh, Gandolfini in focus on the left and uh, Ruffalo in focus on the right. Basically, in a, in a diopter, you divide uh, the lens in half with the different focal lengths uh, being assigned to the different, uh, to the different sides of, of, of the lens. Here, here, for example, is another one. On the right, uh, rough lows in focus. In the middle, you can see everything is sort of out of focus. And on the left-hand side, in the way back, uh, you know, Gandolfini is in focus. Uh, 
It's the same here. You can see, for example, that the light fixture is out of focus um, there, and uh, but Ruffalo is in focus. It's very interesting. I, I just think that there's something very aesthetic about it. Is that correct? Yeah. And how many years did they take of your sentence for that? Four years, sir. So we're establishing something interesting here, which is that Yates is a snitch. He's a guy that ratted out his own men in order to get um, his sentence reduced. And this, of course, is something that is going to be uh, looked and, and frowned upon by the other inmates incredibly. Uh, and it is something that will serve as uh, something that Yates has to overcome in order for us as an audience to like him. Far from the tree. <laughs> Your father. We go back to the concept of the, uh, the father right now, Yates's father. Yates uh, doesn't have a father in the same way that uh, Redford no longer has, in reality, um, you know, his own child. And... Um, well, you know, we're setting up the fact that they're both in search of, um, of one, a child soul, soulmate, and another one, a father soulmate. They are uh, destined uh, for one another, despite their differences, and despite their differences about leadership, and despite their differences about uh, uh, how they should be beha behaving in the prison. Does three months sound better? I need to resolve this situation quickly. Before someone Mark else Ruffalo hurt. was, boy, what a sport this guy was on the set. Um, I remember on the last few days of, uh, of shooting, his, uh, his wife was um, uh, pregnant and uh, about to give birth, and he was, always had his cell phone on. And when she went into labor, we got him a, a plane ticket to get out of Nashville and to New York. And, <laughs> and we had to shoot all his scenes out, basically three days' worth of scenes in two hours. And you've never seen a guy... A, run from one location to another, and B, you've never seen, um, you know, a guy get it on the first take better than Mark Ruffalo did uh, on that morning. Okay, of all the scenes in the film that I'm troubled by or am or ambivalent about, this probably is the biggest. Okay, because and it's been pointed out in, in several reviews, and in this case, the critics are right. Uh, a fight is staged to get the guards out. Well, we got two guards here. And so it's unrealistic there would just be two guards there anyway. They're, uh, they're sent out, and uh, now General Irwin is going to give a speech, and it's a fairly lengthy speech, and to think that the guards wouldn't return is a little bit unrealistic. You know, I, when, I, when I shot the film, I, I, I did consider this ahead of time, and I thought, you know what, um, you know what, maybe people will buy it, and, and for the most part, uh, people did buy it. There are no guards there watching. And, you know, they buy into the cinema conceit of it all. But uh, in the end, I wish I had found uh, a better way to do this. Although, for the life of me, even right now, I can't think of a way for him to give a speech to 300 men without any guards there that, uh, that would be more fitting than this. We spent long, 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 long time uh, working on this speech. And we spent uh, many, many, uh, many, many days on it and many days on the trailer with Redford on it and... Um, you know, I came up with some stuff, and the writers came up with some stuff, and Redford came up with some stuff, and, and, uh, and Walter Parks came up with some stuff. And I must say that um, Walter, uh, who was nominated for the Academy Award for War Games, 
came up with the the, the essence of the, the or the media essence of the inspirational section of this speech. They cannot take away from us who we are. We are soldiers. And we. And that's Walter's line, and and I and I think that it I think that it really works, and I, and, and uh, more than anything else, I know that it would work to inspire soldiers because I was one myself, and I was allegedly a leader of soldiers when I was an officer for a few short years. The uniform code of military justice. Again, it's uh, Bob Redford giving you know a long speech, and and again I challenge you to find too many of those in uh, in the movies. Yet he delivers it smoothly and uh, seamlessly and um, with complete believability. With procedural rules. I, I think that one of the reasons why Redford took this role was that he was able to play a military general. He was able to play something that he had never, ever played before. I think he was a soldier in, in one movie. He was a soldier in um, A Bridge Too Far. That was basically a, um, a supporting role. But uh, to be a man who is, uh, represents the establishment, well, that's something entirely different. He is truly one of the great liberals ever. So the men are inspired, uh, but pretty soon we're going to do a little camera move right here to find uh, Yates not buying at all. He's been there before. He understands. And now we continue to fetishize uh, uh, the flag, which we saw in the beginning of the film, which we, and which we really have seen throughout the entire movie. The flag, of course, plays a very important part in this film. We're hearing the narration from earlier in the film, and uh, it's come full circle, and, and here we are. He's going to use the chess pieces to explain how we're going to take command of the prison. Chess, as you may have noticed, uh, plays not an insignificant part in, in this film. It is, the, um, it is the game of kings. It is a game of strategy. And there are, there are few uh, games that uh, so match the essence of, of war. You set up a command post. Okay. Right here, we've got the guard. Well, here, first of all, this is admin building, winter's office, guards. Okay? Phase one, neutralize winter's guards. Phase two, tower. Now, this, of course, harkens back to the bluff that uh, he pulled when, when Wheeler was there. And in this bluff, he was able to see um, what were the moves that uh, the winter was, was pulling um, and in what order, so that when he uh, leads another rebellion, uh, he knows what's coming out. It's going to begin with, uh, <clears throat> it's going to begin with the guards, we're going to get a little water cannon action, and then we're going to get a helicopter. And eventually, he, he tells them, we have to capture the flag, and we're going to have to fly it upside down. If we fly it upside down, then we can uh, show that to Wheeler. It'll mean that um, Colonel Winter has lost control of the prison, and therefore Colonel Winter will be uh, summarily kicked out. Now, the upside-down American flag is a symbol of distress. It's really very simple. It's absolutely appropriate, and there's nothing unpatriotic about flying a flag upside down. Unless, of course, you're not in distress. Um, originally, the poster for this movie was an upside-down American flag. And um, it was really very beautiful. Um, David Sameth uh, created it. Uh, he uh, creates all of the key art for, uh, 
and all the materials to, to promote DreamWorks movies. And uh, I thought it was gorgeous. And we had it, had it out there, and it was getting a lot of attention. Uh, but you know what? Uh, we had to take it down because after September the 11th, uh, 2001, um, nobody wanted to see an upside-down American flag, um, myself included, but also um, every executive and, every, and everybody at, at DreamWorks. We all made the decision collectively, not as a piece of marketing, but out of personal conviction. It was a pretty emotional time for all of us. We can talk more about that a little bit later. I know your type very well. Is that right? Is that from your infinite years of experience on the battlefield? Now, here's, uh, you know, here's something else that you don't see Redford do quite often. Redford kind of loses it in this scene, doesn't he? I mean, he gets angry, and you rarely see a Redford character angry. Redford characters are often very contained. Um, it's what he, he does best. And it, but I think that, you know, Bob was really relishing doing this scene. He really enjoyed doing this scene. He really enjoyed being able to unleash. Here we go. Okay, get past it. That was then. The only thing that matters here is what we are now and what we I do mean, now. He's really chewing out uh, Yates. He's not yelling, but he's, he's clearly aggressive and clearly saying, telling him that he's disappointed. And you see Yates behaving like a child there, shaking his head, you know, behaving very immaturely. Hiding. I mean, uh, it's definitely like a father and his teenage son. And I think that, again, one of the keys to this film is that in almost every scene, the actors really got the essence of their characters. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm a very good director. I think I'm okay. Uh, but one thing I do well is I cast well. I, I'll give myself that pat on the back. Uh, there, there's another die after shot, by the way. Uh, boy, do I cast well. I mean, everybody looks the part and... Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I can find good actors, and my actors are just friggin' terrific. And uh, the, the fact that they really just get the part, it just, it's something I could never do. The two people I respect the most, the two professionals I respect the most in the film world are actors and composers, because they do things that I could never learn. They have a natural talent that I can never, ever come by. It's 30 days, it's, uh, it's, it's three months, it's not gonna cut it. I got to get out of here immediately. I got to get out of here tomorrow. So this is uh, very unsettling for audiences because uh, Yates is basically, uh, after having that conversation with Irwin, he's ready to say, uh, to, to give everyone up. Uh, you know, he's ready to snitch, which is part of his character. Good luck. You know, Gandolfini, Winter, uh, recognizes this weakness in, in Ruffalo, that he has the ability to snitch, and he exploits it. Remember, Colonel Winter finds the worst in men, whereas Redford's character finds the best in men. It's simply two different forms of leadership. One will work and one will not. Guess which one? Well, that information won't get you released. That information won't even get you extra potatoes at lunch. I know the details. I know how he plans to neutralize your men. There we go. And how he plans to take what's, what's really beautiful about um, the staging here, I think, is that because his back has been turned to Ruffalo uh, all this time, he's able to express his true feelings facially. He doesn't have to hide them because uh, Yates can't see it, but we can. And so we get a whole other piece of dialogue, which is being expressed through uh, you know, facial expressions that we wouldn't otherwise see. No one sees him. Do you understand me? Yes, Place sir. a guard on his cell. 
Damn rats! What's the problem? What's the get problem? My mother's here. sick. I'm trying to get a furlough. Shut up! Get him out of here! Captain with me. Oh, Jesus, man. And now he really has no choice. He has to uh, side along with uh, Colonel Winter. And I love the man trapped in the middle, Peretz. I gotta go back to the general. I'll know something tomorrow. Come get it's me a nice little 500. piece of triangulation. It was an idea that Steve had that I thought was right on. Well, here comes a scene that has some personal importance uh, to me. Picks up the letter from his, uh, from his estranged daughter. He opens it up. In the background, we can hear uh, Dean Hall, uh, an extra who is a country singer, singing, some, uh, singing a song for us that he wrote for this movie. We'll hear it again in the end credits. I told Bob, just, I'm going to let the camera roll, just read, just read. And there goes the photo of the, uh, his son older, his grandson older. That happens to be one Hunter Lurie, Hunter Fletcher Lurie, my, my, my son in his soccer outfit. When my son saw this film, he told me that was his favorite scene in the film. Very selfless uh, comment from a, a 10-year-old boy at the time. Sir, where's Yates' cell? Yates? It's 340, sir. Yates has been sitting just like Redford has all night long. Here's the other uh, mirror shot done with a diopter. I think kind of interesting. You see how uh, Jim Gandolfini is completely in focus, and so are Ruffalo and, um, and uh, Steve Burton. Good morning. Good morning. Basically, um, I don't remember why, but we improvised uh, this scene on, on, on the day. I just think that um, uh, whenever, when we rehearsed what was scripted, um, it didn't sound as, uh, as right to us. I thought there was something you might want to Or as mellifluous to us as, uh, as what we eventually ended up with here. If you take over the prison, they're going to fly the flag upside down. Upside down? It's an international sign of distress, sir. Yes, I know what it means. And where are they going to get a flag? They already have it. Audiences love this moment. They love it here. And it come, it's a sort of a three-part process. That was the first part. Second part, he looks down for the flag. They love it there. Peretz, who was in here yesterday? I took it, you murdered. And they love that Fuck. most of all. I thought you were smarter than that. Yes, I know you did. Again, that's a good Mick Rogers, uh, one of his stuntmen, uh, going down there. Come on, get up, Yates. Where's the flag? You know, you're a real fucking coward tomorrow. And you're a big hero. Let's go. Come on. I really love this uh, this shot, pushing into pushing into the um, into the hole itself. 
And there's uh, Redford. He's just in exactly the same position that he was maybe seven hours ago. We had half a day to shoot everything that you're seeing now inside the tiers. And uh, so basically we just had two takes for everything at most. Um, you know, the men, uh, the, the guards would rush in, they'd start tearing apart and ransacking all the, uh, all the, all the cells. And uh, then we had to reassemble everything. And so it was, uh, it was a big drag where we were able to do it. Um, for these, all these shots, you know, because of um, the, amount, the simple amount of time you have in a day and the amount of setting up that is necessary, I used three, sometimes, I think three cameras was the most that I used. And, uh, you know, that becomes extremely important. Um, in fact, for almost all the action sequences, we used three and four, and I think we even used five cameras at one time. Uh, it, it's simply too difficult to, uh, to, reset, um, uh, to reset all those, uh, all those specific scenes. You know, we're... Uh, we're about to get into the big battle scene of, of the film pretty soon. And uh, before we start it, uh, let me tell you this. We, it lasts about 15 minutes. Um, I cut out about 25 minutes of it. There was just, uh, there was so much stuff there. And, you know, so much work goes into uh, every little bit of action and every stunt. And it's sort of, sort, of, sort of a tragedy to have to cut any of it out. Um, but when you piece it all together... I, you know, I'd rather it not be boring because eventually even action can be boring. You know, movie making in general, I would say the biggest lesson I've ever learned about movie making is that it's all about dosage. It's how much you have of, uh, of anything, how many jokes you have, how much sex you have, uh, how, many, uh, uh, how, how many great lines you have, and how much action you have. Everything has got to be in exactly the, the appropriate dosage. And I think that we have it down to exactly the right dosage right now. Very, very happy with the battle sequence. Um, again, uh, it's really all Mick Rogers. Here's kind of a fun shot coming up over, uh, over Gandolfini's shoulder as he looks down, and the men dispersing, and he sort of just loses it in a very naturalistic way. You know, um, we're going to come soon to you know individual shots of, uh, of Redford and, and Ruffalo and, and, and Gandolfini, and uh, they're basically reacting when in close-up they're reacting to nothing, they're reacting to air, and it seems kind of cheesy and corny as you're shooting it. It almost doesn't make any sense, but boy, you know when you have editors like mine, Michael Jablow and Kevin Stitt, um, Michael having done The Contender, Kevin having done. Um, you know, several terrific films like uh, like X-Men and some Lethal Weapon films and, and Payback. Uh, you know, those guys really know how to put, put it together to make it all absolutely seamless. You know, even as I'm looking at it right now, I'm surprised that the whole thing works because it took us basically two weeks to shoot the battle or even three weeks. And uh, it was just little pieces at a time, very often without a lot, like that shot right there of the man throwing and, and, and those two guys being, uh, being hit. Those were the only guys that we were shooting, so it just, nothing else was going on. It, it just didn't seem like, uh, like big action. But again, I was under the tutelage of, of Mick Rogers there, who really put it together well. They'll expect us to come hard and fast, so we won't. You ain't you little prick. I bet against you and cost you a stash of smoke. Yeah, there's a lot of losers today. And off he goes. Goes on a good run. He's a fast little guy, Mark Ruffalo. 
He's a fast guy. He's quite an athlete, too. I think that uh, Ruffalo was the uh, Virginia State uh, wrestling champion in, in, his weight, in his weight class. Very athletic. You know, some, some of the shots here uh, I wasn't even present for, uh, like that shot of the, um, of the uh, um, catapult or the, the slingshot, I should say, being pulled out of the rocks. You know, I was out shooting something else, and Mick was down there with his second unit shooting that, shooting that stuff. And uh, one of the things that a really great second unit director will accomplish is to have the filmic style be seamless. And uh, Mick certainly accomplished that. You know, I, I knew that I, simply from my own experience as a director and from the amount of time that I had and even the budget that I had, that I could not compete with some of the really big, slick action movies. I could not compete with Michael Bay, for example, or James Cameron. Um, I, I just don't have their slick style or their knowledge or their money or their time. And uh, so what, what I decided to do was to make my skeletons dance for me. I wanted... You know, we're going to have a very fantastical scene, but I wanted to shoot it in as realistic a, a way as, as possible, to almost shoot it as if uh, it was being shot by war photographers. You know, and, and, I, and I don't mean, a, you know, a shaky moving camera. I, I, I simply mean that um, everything is sort of, uh, this fantastical stuff is grounded in a kind of reality, like those two shots you just saw there. This shot of it going up in flames, you know, they're, they're just not as slickly done as they are in, in some other films, and, and, I, and I think that that actually works for us. Him. That's kind of a nice moment here. And again, you know, I, I just love the way that Shelley uses uh, reflections. We see what's going on in the outside and the inside at the same time. I'm taking okay, and I want to confess something. The, these two shots, uh, the, the shots of Redford between the two towers... Uh, and this, here's the second one. Um, they originally uh, did not have the towers on fire at the time, but I'll confess that I just wanted to have a really great shot for the trailer, and in fact, it was used in the trailer. How close to ready? Fuck! We're almost there, sir! Sir, could, could you come here, please? Now, he's asking him what it is they're building, and... Um, Gandolfini will say that he doesn't know. Now, um, one thing that I cut out was uh, Gandolfini running to another part of the office to look through a different angle, and then he tells him what it is. He tells him that it's a that it is a trebuchet. But I thought it was more interesting if he suddenly didn't know until until the last second. Sound effects here are really beautifully done, too. Uh, I cannot tell you uh, how important sound is to a movie. The shots of the individual bullets hitting uh, the trays, you know, they add simply a, a great deal to the reality of the moment. Here's a shot that Mick created that I like very much. The men come out, and the camera, in a very sort of elegant and subtle way, follows the men around almost to the point where you think it's two shots, but it's really just one shot. And here they come. Now we're using, I believe, a um, half shutter, which Mick, uh, I think Mick used quite a bit in, uh, in Braveheart. That's a really beautiful shot, a beautiful silhouette of Paul Calderon. 
guy who's going to fire, uh, who's going to hold the uh, makeshift howitzer here, was one of our construction workers, Charlie. Nice guy. His big moment in life. Here it is. Boom. I gotta say, shooting these explosions were a lot of fun. Move ten feet forward. Again, th this whole sequence was was much longer, and we simply cut it down because, you know, once you get the point, you get the point, and um, the, you know, and once you've seen one bit of action, simply prolonging it is not going to be helpful cinematically or in terms of the storytelling. Now is the time. Here comes something that I'm I'm pretty proud of. I mean, this was sort of an, an idea that I had on uh, on the set. Um, at the at the very last minute, which is there's something very special about this rock, eh? And we'll get to that in a second. Off it goes. You know, this thing is shot in many different pieces. That's five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, ten shots just to show the rock coming through the window. Everything was shot in little bits and pieces. Now here comes another series of shots. There's one shot. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I think that shot was already used. Eight, nine. You know, you know, we have at least nine shots just to show the fire coming through. And that's and that's what I used. Little bits and pieces. That's what uh, Mick taught me, and uh, it was a valuable lesson. Now, uh, Mike Gerby's really on fire there. He is absolutely on fire. You know, that's what I call a ballsy little actor. <laughs> that guy, for me, he actually lit himself on fire. They, you know, he was protected, but uh, I don't know if, about you, but I'm not going to light myself on fire under, I think, any circumstances. I'm pretty certain about that. Okay, so here's the nice moment I was talking to you about. You know, he, he looks down, everything, everything is smashed, and it, it, that was the payoff, was that his goodies were smashed. But I thought we could go one payoff more, and here it was. The rock that they fired is the rock that was engraved by Aguilar, USMC, United States Marine Corps. And that always brought a hush over our audience, and, and I really dug that. I wish that I had shot the entrance of the water cannon a little differently. It's exactly the same shot as, as I used earlier in the film. You know, variety is, is, variety is really key when uh, shooting action. As many shots as, you know, as, as possible, That's, that was uh, very important. Now that's one actor uh, who is one stuntman who's firing off the, uh, uh, you know, the water hose there, and later on you'll see that uh, it's a different actor, but it's a special actor who uh, here. That, that's Kevin Stitt. That's my uh, that's my editor, who had to uh, come in for uh, emergency duty. Very nice shot from Colonel Winter's point of view. Again, you know, Jim just never overdoes it. You know, he, you know, he's he still thinks Colonel Winter does that he's he's in control. Again, if you'd simply counted the amount of shots that were that, you know that were done here to accomplish this uh, sequence, it probably would amount to 15 or 20 shots, and that's a lot. You know, it's um, 
It's a lot of shots, it's a lot of setups, and really the only way to do action like that. Here comes a moment that audiences seem to like. It's, uh, you know, Colonel Winter's on top, now the men are on top, and now uh, Irwin is on top. It's always when Irwin is on top that we get the biggest cheers. We rarely get one when this guy's on top. It never happens. Full swing. You know, I, I think that Brian Goodman really stands out in this film. He's, uh, he's really a very gifted actor, and I'm very happy for all his uh, recent success. Get it. USMCF, Colonel Warner's office. Who shot this um, from... Uh, outside the, um, from outside the office window, you know, looking in, which is a quite an, an elaborate rig. A bit of a drag for, uh, for the cameraman, I must say, but well worth it. You have the situation under control, sir, where to... Mopping up now. Mopping up. That's a funny line. Good. Glad to hear it. We'll see you in 20 then. It's funny, only in the context of how it was uh, photographed, which, again, you really need to give Shelley Johnson all the credit for. I want this over. Now, get them airborne. Almost every one of the action bits um, here was sort of written out by, um, by Graham Yost, who really is one of the best action writers there are in this, in this country. You need to look at only at his movies like Speed and Broken Arrow uh, to understand that. Now, we're going to come on a, an extremely sort of fantastical scene. I think uh, it's, uh, it's called Far-Fetched. Um, well, I think that's appropriate, but it, it, it somehow works in the heat of the moment here, which is going to be how the uh, the helicopter is captured by that harpoon, which obviously uh, they got out of the laundry. All the equipment here is uh, is is improvised, by the way, by the men. It's sort of MacGyver style, as some of the reviews uh, pointed out. They simply use what they had, uh, you know, at their disposal, which is what a great general does. It is, you know, use the elements available to him. So the water is turned on. It uh, pushes the harpoon forward, and that. Harpoon, of course, latches onto uh, onto the helicopter, and here's something that uh, I bet you didn't know. This is going to be Mark Ruffalo doing all his own stunts. That, of course, is Mark uh, is Mark running, and you know he didn't have to do this. He could have simply stopped, and the stuntman would take over. Mark Ruffalo starts to climb the chain, and that's that's Ruffalo all the way. Yes, I know. Now, that's Ruffalo still on there. That's still Mark Ruffalo. I'm going to say a lot of that, a lot of still Mark Ruffalo. That's Mark swinging on the chain. Which, and, and that's Mark, as you, can clearly, as you can clearly see. And, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's just amazing to watch. I mean, the guy is an athlete of the highest order. And um, up he goes. You know, like a little monkey, that guy. Even in the wide shot, that was that was Mark. Uh, that's Mark on the ledge. You know, we um, we built a, a special contraption. Uh, Bert Dalton did that. He's our special effects uh, wizard. Uh, you know. Now here, you know, I, I guess I have a problem with the sequence. I, I think that um, that Mark takes uh, or Yates uh, is able to knock those guys out a little easily, and I don't personally buy it. And um, 
you know, if I had more time, I, I might engineer a, a larger fight that would actually, uh, I could put a camera behind the back of the helicopter facing out uh, over the windshield and having the helicopter almost come crashing down to, into the ground. I think it would have been more exciting and more helpful. Now, that's Dave Alford as, um, as Zamoro. And, uh, you know, I, I cut his best scene out of the film, but you, you can see it on the deleted scenes. I think it's one of the most beautifully acted scenes in the film. He's a wonderful Nashville local. Um, I've got a lot of my local, um, a lot of my actors locally out of, out of Nashville. He puts in a live, a live bullet, which uh, gives uh, sort of the moral authority to Yates to, uh, to uh, you know, to, in self-defense to kill him. And kaboom, there he goes. This explosion, by the way, was, um, it was tough and, and it bothered some audience members because, it, you know, I, I guess we've all heard the expression in the, in the post-September 11th mood of the country. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how well, how well it flew, but there was really nothing we could do about it once we had, uh, once we had shot it. And, um, but I think it was very effective and will stand the test of time very well, as will <laughs> this sequence. I mean, he really takes quite a whooping there, uh, our man Yates. But um, this is the movies, and our hero comes to rescue him. I, I love this moment from Gandolfini. He just uh, doesn't have anything left inside of him to deal with. Yates is um, come on. and Yates is saved. Now, we're, we're about to come. Uh, we're going to have a scene now of, uh, of the helicopter exploding, of the, uh, our two heroes leaping uh, away from it at, at the last possible minute. And... You know, I, you know, I right there. I, I knew when I did it that uh, this wasn't going to be my favorite shot in the film. And, and although it's very well done, I mean, brilliantly executed by everybody involved, it is a, definitely a, a cliche. And I talked to Mick Rogers about it, and he told me that um, that it would be almost distract, distracting not to have it in the film at all. That audiences would come to expect the explosion uh, simply because they've seen it in so many movies that. Um, that it would be actually counterproductive uh, not to have it in. Now we have a moment of victory, um, you know, in the film. They look at the damage they have done. They have taken everything. They have taken the towers. Um, many of the guards are, you know, being held prisoner in, in, in the hole. Um, and the high ground, the helicopter, is, is gone as well. And so there is only one thing left uh, to do right now. And, um, and they're going to do it. Yates looking up at the tower he brought down, looking at the helicopter where he almost lost his life. And, um, and now they pull it out. The uh, American flag, Jerry's music, I think, here is uh, beautiful and <clears throat> really a sign of victory. The music really represents a victory in a very cleansing and uh, very subtle, in a very subtle way. And now the men... Um, get into formation with much more speed and much more efficiency than they ever have. Uh, the blue sky is, a, is as blue as blue can be. Um, again, everything sort of represents victory here. We have much more color in the yard now than we've ever had, uh, particularly because of the blue sky. They dress right dress. You know, it, it's a, they're becoming a functioning military unit. And boom, they're ready to go. Now we focus on to Redford is going to take control of the scene right now. Redford moves into position. And again, you know, you know, Paul Calderon has got a good salute because he was uh, he was in the service. 
He admires the men. He really does. They're part of his family. They're part of his unit right now. Takes a deep breath. Does an about face. Now the music has a subtle shift, and uh, you know that that's Jerry Goldsmith's uh, genius in creating emotional moments, um, really out of uh, you know out of thin air. Again, I don't know how composers do it. I don't know how those uh, little beats come into their brain. Now, there was a lot of dialogue in this uh, whole scene originally. Redford uh, was telling um, was telling Gandolfini, we have your men, time for you to surrender, or we're going to raise a flag upside down. Then we had um, a moment here where Gandolfini, Gandolfini actually took out his, um, his radio and signaled all his men, all these men, to come out. We managed to get that all out of the film, and there is a... You know, a friend of mine called it a Vera Cruz quality here. Uh, you know, very, just silently uh, playing everything out. Colonel Winter is moving his men into a checkmate position. And the only way for Irwin to avoid it is to have I seen have it ahead of time, but has he? Of lethal ammunition at this facility. Any prisoner. My contention is that probably not. That probably not. He probably did not see this moment coming. Those, of course, are all the men that um, had been in the tears who were told, were told to, uh, to hold up by, um, by Colonel Winter because he wanted to get all the prisoners into one mass location, you know, to be uh, tightly put together so that if he needs to shoot them, um, the targeting will be extremely efficient. This one sequence uh, took us five days. Very, very complicated uh, to do. Um, a lot of it had to do with uh, the, the weather changing in Nashville. It was really incredible. You have never seen um, weather change as much as you do in Nashville. You don't like the weather, uh, stick around. It's going to change. Those, these three shots you just saw, this fourth one, probably done over the course of, you know, four or five different days. Again, Redford has not spoken one word. And here Wait. it comes. He has one word. We don't have to do this. We'll fight on it. No. It ends here. Men, get down. Slowly, they take their positions, you know, being led by uh, the one man who can possibly lead them. Now, look at all my actors here. Every one of my supporting actors want to be last man standing. So Enrique's in the background. You too, Yates. Look at this. You see there, you can see in the bottom left, there's Thumper going down. He wants to be the last one down. Everyone wants to be last man down. Finally, Yates goes down. And Winter thinks that he has won. 
Redford hears the, or Irwin hears the sound of the uh, radio going back in his belt. That turns him around. He comes up, telling him to give him his flag. That's his way of saying checkmate. Give me my flag. And he's saying it's not a checkmate when he says... It's not your flag. It's not your flag. Meaning, of course, that it's Irwin's flag, or the flag of the soldiers. The men know something. Ruffalo and Redford, Yates and Irwin, they know something. Now, basically, almost all of Jim's uh, dialogue here is improvised by him, or improvised by the two of us together. Open fire. Up until now, uh, Jim had uh, really had uh, Winter tightly wound up, had him completely, uh, really in control of his own emotions. It is when he realizes that his own men will not follow him, when he realizes the extent to which he is not a leader, that he unravels. Open fire on that man! That's an order! It is when we realize that we are not who we thought we were, when the qualities we thought we had don't really exist, that we break down. He's completely lost it now. What are they doing? He's moving much faster than he ever has in the entire film. He moves with much more speed and electricity. In other words, he just is not in control. Now notice something here. Notice the flag is going right side up, you see? Very important point. walks with speed, and now, remember how in the beginning of the movie, they were taking bets on uh, whether or not, uh, and at what time, uh, General Irwin was going to commit suicide. He had to know that Winter would do this to him, so it essentially is a form of suicide. So that loop has been closed. It's, it's over. Peretz has come full circle, realizing just, just that um, he's been uh, a marionette for this man, for a bad man, for a long time. Time to come to the other side. Prisoners, stay down. Every last energy, there's the ring again. Hey, duck! He, um, he can uh, summon. Well, he's raising chair. that flag. This so was an insert shot. Uh, you know, without this shot, people were confused as to whether or not uh, Gandolfini had actually been arrested. Doc comes to comfort him, but uh, you know, Redford, who's been uh, Irwin, who's been wounded in battle many times, realizes that it's it's over. Just leave me in peace. He's basically saying, the "Doctor can't do it," and he's pulled away. Now, here comes Jerry's uh, score, General Irwin's theme, September the 11th, 2001. It's what it's called, as I said before. And I think it's just beautiful and haunting. 
And here, Bob Redford does something he has never once done in a movie. We have never once seen the life go out of one of his characters in a movie. We've seen, the, we, we know that his characters die. They die off screen and out of Africa. And uh, Butch Cassidy, which was a freeze frame in The Great Waldo Pepper. But there he died for the first time. And here it is. What I hoped was uh, an emotional scene that was not at the same time sentimental. Jerry's score hits perfectly, a beautiful swell, and the flag is flying right set up. Because it is no longer the flag of Colonel Winter, it is the flag of General Irwin. And at General Irwin's castle, nobody is in distress. This voiceover you're about to hear originally belonged to uh, the Irwin character. A great general was the ring again. But uh, tell your men, your soldiers. I wanted to give That's it to Yates flag. because I wanted uh, to impart the lesson that the great leaders always pass down leadership. Raise your flag so it flies high. And so they did. I really, uh, I really loved this shot. Um, originally, the shot just extended way, 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 way back, way outside the prison. And that's how the movie ended. Um, but I, I think that audiences wanted to see, and we learned this from the research screenings, that there was um, some, sort of, some sort of closure, that the men didn't simply return to their cells and life was as it was um, desolate and without hope. So we go back to the wall, which has been rebuilt, rebuilt beautifully, and uh, they are paying uh, a tribute to a fallen soldier. Because remember what he said in his eulogy, he said that the greatest monuments to men are not in marble. They are where the fallen soldiers lie, and there it is. Eugene R. Owen, the U.S. Army. Um, you'll notice that I didn't take a, um, a credit on this film that said, uh, you know, a film by uh, Rod Lurie or Rod Lurie film, and, and that's because it really isn't. It, it truly is not. Um, it belongs to everyone that was involved in this film. Uh, beginning with uh, David Scarpa, who came up with the idea for the movie, um, and then to David and, um, and Graham Yost, to, uh, to the producer Robert Lawrence, who, um, you know, who fed the process, who, who made it all happen, and uh, whose advice and counsel to me on the set were absolutely invaluable. Uh, to Jerry himself, who gave the film uh, an emotional spine with the music, uh, you know, to Kirk Petrucelli, you know, to everyone that, that was involved in it, and, and, and of course, uh, the actors. Uh, you know, this film came out uh, on October 19th, 2001, and uh, not long after uh, those hideous events on, on September the 11th. And uh, the country was in, was in a different emotional state than it was, obviously, uh, before those dates. And, uh, you know, we, we put this movie out. We, we felt that the, um, the, 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 movie, uh, the movie said a lot about what the passion and what the mood of the country should be. It was about nurturing. It was about people finding the best in, them, in themselves. It was about, uh, it's about not giving up. You know, it, it is, um, it's about pride. And you know, it's not really about the flag. Uh, a lot of people thought that the movie was very patriotic at the end, uh, with the flag flying proudly and beautifully right side up. But uh, the truth of the matter is that 
you know, the word America is never mentioned. The United States is never really mentioned in the film. And that the, uh, and that the right side of flag was meant to represent pride and not necessarily the country. But um, it made people feel good. And, uh, and that makes, uh, of, course, uh, of course, it makes me feel good uh, as well. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of, uh, of my association with, uh, with The Last Castle. I'm very proud of my association with everybody that, uh, that, that was, you know, involved in it. Uh, I made a lot of good friends, and I, and I learned a great deal in this film. And, uh, and I hope that with this uh, director's commentary that I was able to impart uh, to those of you who want to be involved in the film world um, a little bit of minor wisdom and that you took something away from it. I thank you really very, very much for listening and uh, enjoy the rest of this song by Dean Hall, one of, the, one of our locals in Nashville who found his way into this movie with this wonderful song. I gotta be a man and do it on my own The devil's in my path and the hound's on my heel You had to walk in my shoes just to know how I feel The devil's calling my name, he's the one who knows That I'll never be free till it's chiseled in stone A chiseled in stone A brick in my house A man's life is built all along the way By the things that he's done and the choices he's made Someday they'll call my name, I'll have a place of my own But I'll never be free to the chisel and stone the whistle blows I can rest my body I can rest my soul I built my castle in the promised land It's made of rocks and stone and not the shifting sands When they mention my name after I'm long gone Well, they know I'm free cause it's chiseled in stone Chisel in.